0: Dot .org enjoy
1: is going to be a very exciting conversation about Lee Gilmore and Elizabeth Marshall's new book, Witnessing Girlhood. I'm going to be conducting the interview today. My name is Hannah McGregor. I'm an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University, where my research focuses on the use of podcasting as a form of scholarly communication. So this is right up my alley, and I'm really excited to sort of explore this like quasi book review dialogue interview genre with the two of you. So could I start off by asking you to introduce yourself so we can get a sense of what your voices sound like and who's who?
0: Hello, I'm Elizabeth Marshall. I'm a faculty member with Hannah at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, British Columbia.
2: And I'm Lee Gilmore. I'm Distinguished Visiting Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College, and I work on life writing, uh, feminist theory, uh, and trauma studies.
1: Ah, you both sound mellifluous. And may I also compliment you on your extremely distinguishable voices?
2: (laughs) We try. (laughs) Excellent.
1: i can definitely tell who's talking that's a really good sign i don't have to like use the zoom window to figure out whose voice is who so we're gonna jump right into talking about witnessing girlhood and i want to start with talking a little bit about this business of writing a book collaboratively and if you could tell us a little bit about how you decided that you wanted to work together on this project and what it's like writing a book together
0: Well, actually, this book represents about a decade's worth of scholarship on childhood, life writing, and trauma. So coming from my research in childhood studies and education and Lee's in life writing and cultural practices of judgment and trauma, we were both struck by a particular moment in the 1990s when there seemed to be a new interest in the lives of girls in crisis, especially in the global South. The Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995 and humanitarian projects like Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn's Half the Sky Foundation and Nike's Girl Effect all previewed a steady stream of resolutions addressing education, gender violence, and the health of women and girls. And at the same time, there was an increase in interests. we noticed, that women themselves were rarely sought as authorities to frame solutions, even though they had already done so.
2: And, and Hannah, I just say that this struck us as strange because we could see that there was something going on culturally, a certain density around interests in girls. But our question was, who would know more about traumatized girlhood than the women those girls grew up to be? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were sort of baffled um, by the absence of a discourse on women as political agents And we wondered if actually there might be something like that maybe even a tradition of women writing about their childhoods and Framing their authority to speak as political agents through that experience um, and representing the impact of violence and their analysis of it we wondered if there weren't habits of not paying attention that were so entrenched that there might be something like a body of knowledge in the form of self-representation that was hiding in plain sight. And hiding in plain sight was our working title for a long time. As it turns out, that's precisely what we found in life writing by women of color about violence experienced in childhood and in their choice to use life narratives strategically to persuade diverse publics to see them as credible witnesses rather than as these targets of rescue and salvation. And what we also discovered in tracing that tradition was that it benefited and influenced a mainstream of white writers who emerged in the memoir boom, even as it was largely unacknowledged by them as an influence. Mm-hmm. So that for us, the the, the key um, origin of this history is Harriet Jacobs' incidents in the life of a slave girl. And so with her work as a starting point. We began to trace this recurrence of a mode of life writing that enlists the reader as an ethical witness And that is centrally concerned whatever the life experience was with race gender and justice and there was a cluster of of Interest in those topics that helped us decide what was part of this tradition and what might lie outside of it
1: so I can really hear and and see based in the kinds of traditions that you're drawing on and the the different tracks of your own research prior to this book, the way that bringing your different interests together really helped you arrive at this, this unique set of research questions. Can you talk to us a little bit about process? Like how does collaboratively writing a book like this work?
2: Well, um, that's a, we're not located in the same place, and we're not in the same institution. Um, we're not in the same time zone. So <laughs> those are those are three typical hurdles to collaboration. But I think in my sort of professional realms of life writing and feminist studies, collaborations are often far flung um, mm-hmm. and and international. I think this the same is is true for Beth, but we started thinking together long before we started writing together. And we're typically the first and often the last reader of each other's work. Mm. So we got to know each other's thinking um, and critical styles, our approaches, our methodologies, where those produced interesting surprises and where the divergences also might turn up something interesting for uh, for a long time now. So it was an outgrowth of thinking and reading each other's work together that led to writing together.
0: It's been a very long time that we've written it together and collaborated, even sort of in in, in the background of one another's work. Uh, so Lee is the most reliable reader critic uh, that I have. And um, we often, uh, one of the things I really appreciate about working together is that, you know, years build trust, but also that we quickly turn things around for one another. So say someone sends us a draft of whatever project they're working on at the moment, um, you'll usually have uh, something back within 24 hours, if not sooner. So that, that also really inspires you to keep writing because you have an audience. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I'll send it and say, I'm not sure this is ready, but I just need someone to interact with, with my work. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think about it? Where what, What's working? What, what isn't?
1: I love that. I love that you moved from sort of careful readers and editors of one another's work into co-writers. That's such a great sort of platform on which to build a co-writing relationship.
2: And it's, you know, I would just add that it's a feminist model of work yeah. also. You know, it's a, it's a way of putting our own uh, intellectual relationship at the top of the list and of um, being able to trust each other's feedback implicitly. uh, And, and also, it's a form of intellectual labor and community building. And it's joyful as well to work with someone that you trust.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's drill down a little bit more into this category of girlhood. So this is a book about sexual violence and trauma and, and witnessing and the The way that narrative plays a role in bearing witness to violence in that context, in the context of those stories in that work, why is girlhood so important? I'm particularly interested in in your thinking in the book around what political and ethical work the figure of the girl does.
0: Well, one of the things we learned, and and one of the things I know from studying girlhood across so many years and in different contexts, is that uh, as an experience, it really differs, Mm. sometimes starkly from cultural framings of childhood as a distinct state from adulthood. It's often defined as a period of reduced agency, but increased protection from harm. So when the gendering of this category intersects with history of racism and other forms of violence, its constructedness gets revealed, right? And... um, Whose childhood is protected and and whose childhood is a time of exposure to harm become really markedly clear
2: and the and what Beth's saying about the um, Gendering of childhood is important as well because if we look at girls One of the things that we were noticing is that they're often Abused and doubted even in this period that we began focusing on even as they're held up as figures warranting care and protection so this doubling of their authority and credibility when, as adults, when they referenced their childhood experience was often, we found, able to compel audiences to engage with them ethically, that audiences were able to enter into these narratives of their childhoods um, because they too had experienced, childhood and the adult Mm -hmm. writer was saying i have an authority to speak to this not only because of my adulthood which is a a kind of expertise in and of itself but because i have lived through this experience and so what, what we found was that in these places where this kind of gap got opened up between these cultural constructions of girlhood and actual experiences of girlhood that we could often see the larger institutional structures that um, colluded in producing violence against girls, how they were operating and who they benefited. And in that opening up of that gap between this sort of mythology of girlhood as this protected space and the realities of girlhood experience, which is often an exposure to extreme kinds of risk, that there's this um, sort of cultural myth that we, you know, in quotes, would protect these innocent victims, especially children, if only we knew what was going on. And it's a particularly stubborn kind of myth. The reality, of course, is more complicated, which is that we, again, you know, scare quotes, often does not protect the most vulnerable, especially children and women of color, and it too often protects those who abuse them. So we were Mm -hmm. able to identify this kind of cultural mythology that was absolutely working in the choices of adult women to represent their own girlhood.
1: Something that really stands out for me there and the way that you're articulating the construction of girlhood and, and also something that you articulated in the book is the difference between understanding girlhood as inherently vulnerable versus looking at the actual structures that produce vulnerability and that you you start off by using the example of the Larry Nassar trials and talk about you know how the the women who testified insisted that they were not intrinsically vulnerable but rather that a set of conditions had been deliberately produced to make this violence possible it's it's such a key distinction between saying like girls are just available to harm versus we have in fact created a set of conditions that disproportionately introduce harm.
0: Yeah, the I mean these these conditions are so important. Because we didn't want to reproduce another voyeuristic study of vulnerable girlhood. There's so many out there. Um, (laughs) So the life stories of girls in crisis are vulnerable to cooptation, and and they often become proxies, right, through which white male saviors advance their own stories. So assigning authority to the white male saviors version of girls' lives we've found, um, I mean, it's historically been the dominant mode and it amplifies rather than the girl's story his own role as interpreter of their experience and so we wanted to move away mm. from that yeah and then so more problematically we we really deal a lot in, in the book with empathy uh, which can easily attach to heroic personalities who mediate for distant audience and engagement with vulnerable and even unsympathetic girls. And just to, to talk a little bit
2: about, about form and how life writing, which is the, the formal focus of the history that we're tracing, um, it's it's different. It can do some things that that other forms don't necessarily do. Um, for one thing, life writing is pretty effective at resisting those campaigns that tug at the heartstrings by offering accounts that are more likely to confront those kind of aversive affects that attach to experiences of violence of vulnerable people and compromised compromise subjects and entrenched forms of oppression. And these are The the sort of issues that you were um, identifying hannah in your question is the ways in which girls are rendered vulnerable um, rather than Intransigently vulnerable because of the condition of of youth and when adult Women tell those stories of their girlhood They're they're absolutely addressing that point and and so what we thought was that those texts rather than belonging to something maybe Like an exclusively literary tradition. I know there's no such thing as that But 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 that they were part of a of a discourse of feminist political representations of girlhood and that we're looking at these autobiographical counts in the various sort of the first chapter of the book But in the earliest research on the on the topic with Harriet Jacobs and mid-19th uh, century United States abolition and the slave narrative Or we also looked at Rigoberta Manchu and the testimonio in Latin American politics and then Marjan Satrapi the author Of the very popular graphic memoir Persepolis and and more that what all of them were doing was was really interrogating uh rescue politics of this sort of permanently vulnerable girl um and and that focus on that that girl who's like that sort of forever obscures the Mm -hmm. economic and you know and i would go further to say political legal and even cultural formations and institutions that imperil specific communities Mm -hmm. and in her place these authors represent the girl as a site of testimony that like girlhood is a location from which you can give evidence. And it's also a new figure who testifies. And so what we were able to do, we hope, is to cast a new light on the ongoing dangers of a politics that's based on a universal girlhood and the appeal of rescue by centering instead the resistance strategies raised within women's life writing accounts about childhood.
1: I love that. It's so powerful to think about the authority of the speaker and about sort of girlhood as a site of authority and evidence rather than always formulating our response to these kinds of stories in terms of the empathetic or ethical response of the reader. But, The response of the reader is is also an important dynamic of how we think about the political work that these texts can do. And that really comes through that sort of complex relationship between the girlhood being recalled, the author doing the recalling, and then the reader sort of witnessing what's happening in the narrative. The relationship between those different figures recalls something that you're unpacking in this book about the complex position of witnessing. And I'm particularly interested. So you're talking, you're, you're obviously talking about witnessing in the book. It's right there in the title. But you also talk quite a bit about the idea of accompaniment. And you describe accompaniment as a gesture of care that insists on the possibility of ethical witness. So I'm wondering if you could unpack for us a little bit more sort of how you think about The relationship between accompaniment and witness and these.